Now, we can do this the hard way or, well, actually, there's just the hard way. Seize the moment, because tomorrow you might be dead. Okay, vessel boy, you want blood? It's not going to be pretty. We're talking violence, strong language, adult content. Excuse me, I have to call everyone that I've ever met right now. The earth is doomed. (laughs) All right, let's do this thing. Welcome to Still Pretty. I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media. And I'm film scholar Noelle LaCroix. And we're here today to talk about Welcome to the Hellmouth and The Harvest, the first two episodes of season one. Welcome to the Hellmouth and The Harvest were both written by Joss Whedon, with story editor credits going to Matt Kine, Joe Reichemeyer, Jean Batali, and Rob Desartel. Welcome to the Hellmouth was directed by Charles Martin Smith, who only directed this one episode of Buffy. And The Harvest was directed by John T. Kretschmer, who would return for only one other episode, season two's School Hard. All right, let's go on patrol. In the two-part series opener of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, 16-year-old Buffy Summers starts school in her new town of Sunnydale. And at first, things go pretty well. The school's resident cool girl, Cordelia, likes her. And she meets Willow and Xander. But then... Jim was canceled due to the extreme dead guy in the locker. After investigating and discovering that the dead kid was killed by a vampire, she rushes to the library to report the events to Mr. Giles, the school librarian who seems to know about these things. You think it's coincidence you're being here? That boy was just the beginning. Oh, why can't you people just leave me alone? Because you are the slayer. Determined to live a normal life, Buffy goes to the bronze to socialize. On the way, she meets a dark-haired mystery man in an alley who warns her about the vampires and gives her a silver cross necklace. You've got to be ready. What for? For the harvest. At the bronze, she bumps into Willow and then is found by Giles, who insists that she fulfill her destiny and be on the lookout for vampires. You have to hone your senses, focus until the energy washes over you, until you you feel even particle of it. There's one. Buffy sees Willow go off with a vampire and gives chase, but the vampire escapes with Willow. Buffy tells Giles she'll take care of it, then goes into the alley and bumps into Xander, who reveals what he overheard in the library. Uh, Oh, hey, I hope he's not a vampire because then you might have to slay him. Buffy gets beat up by an uncommonly large vampire named Luke, escapes, rescues Willow and Xander, fails to rescue Jesse, and reports into Giles to discover that the harvest is the ritual through which a vessel will kill a lot of people, thus empowering the master to break free of his mystical prison. She mustn't be allowed to interfere with the harvest. Buffy realizes that the entrance to the underground lair is in the mausoleum and decides to go back in and take the bad guys out. The mystery man, whose name we discover is Angel, shows up to mock her. And then Xander shows up to be, you know, really of no help at all. They find Jesse, which is great, except now he's a vampire, which is not great. They barely make it out alive. Back at home, Buffy's getting ready to go out and stop the apocalypse when Joyce comes in and grounds her. If you don't go out, it'll be the end of the world. Everything is life or death when you're a 16-year-old girl. Buffy sneaks out the window and makes it to the bronze, where Luke and a group of vampires have taken everyone hostage and begun feeding. Just as they're about to feed on Cordelia, Buffy interrupts the party, dusts the vampires, and saves the day. The master is still underground, but he's stuck there. For now. 
At school the next day, Buffy, Willow, Xander, and Giles form their core team, knowing that the only thing that stands between the world and a bloody apocalypse is the four of them. All right. So you haven't watched Buffy for like 10 years. At least. We're talking about Welcome to the Hellmouth and the Harvest. What did you think about it coming back into it now? So it's been at least 10 years since I've watched the show. (laughs) Um, Coming back in, I was really struck by how subversive it still seems, especially with that cold open. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we established the high school as this dark place of suspense and horror with long, dark hallways and animal skeletons in the biology lab. (laughs) (laughs) And then the first spoken line is Darla, who says, are you sure this is a good idea? And that felt just a little bit self-aware to me. I was I was struck by how self-aware the show seemed to be right off the bat um, Mm -hmm. coming in from the movie, presumably. Mm -hmm. But I want to talk about the cold open because it's just so cool. I really, really love it. Um, We have this. So it ends with this moment with this pretty blonde, apparently fearful girl who becomes the monster. Right. Mm -hmm. And that feels like the show in a nutshell to me. Right. It's subverting those expectations because when we see a pretty blonde girl in any horror context, especially if she has had the audacity to, you know, have sex or have a sexual thought, or be with a boy alone in a dark hallway. She has to die. Exactly. Right? She has to be punished because she is not Mm -hmm. chaste. Right? Yeah. So any any girl with any kind of sexual existence at all, let alone the blonde, it's always a blonde girl. You know, there's nothing a horror movie loves more than killing the pretty blonde girl, you know. Um, and here we have this instant subversion of that, you know, not just that the thing that we get with Buffy is, of course, that she's the pretty blonde girl who always gets killed, except that she's actually, you know, the one, the thing the monsters are afraid of, which is another subversion of that trope. But right here from the beginning, we get this cute little blonde girl right who seems afraid who seems Mm -hmm. scared you know who's there with a boy who is you know behaving in a somewhat predatory manner himself right don't worry it's fine come on with me Mm -hmm. that kind of thing that sort of coercive sort of teenage boy thing right and then she ends up being the monster she ends up taking him out you know and he ends up dying as punishment for that you know patriarchal coercion that sexual aggression and coercion that we usually see you know in boys go unpunished Mm -hmm. so in this cold open immediately we've got like a million different things that we're dealing with a million different messages that we're both sending and definitely um and that guy is such a douche i'm so glad he gets eaten um (laughs) I mean, I want to say, like, I don't think that a teenage boy who is sexually coercive should necessarily be killed for it. But I do feel like sending the message that that's a bad thing is not a bad thing. Yeah. Well, and he tries to scare her, too. Yes. It's not Mm -hmm. just that he's she says, oh, I'm not so sure about that. And he's like, come on, it'll be fine. He's also Mm -hmm. he's being creepy intentionally Intentionally trying to scare Um, her. Bringing her into the room with the the skeletons of the animals yeah. and all of that stuff. Well, yeah. and full disclosure, this totally got me. Um, yeah. <laughs> it totally got me because he's there. I mean, he's even lurking over her shoulder in prime vampire position. 
Right. Until right, she right. spins around and bites him. And I remembered <laughs> that Julie Benz played a recurring character on the show. But I decided mm-hmm. that this douche bro was a vampire who was going to bite her and make her a vampire. And right. surprise, the girl is a monster. And I loved that. I loved re-experiencing that reveal. Um, because, mm-hmm. of course, we have that that horror staple of the pretty blonde girl. And we can thank Hitchcock for that, by the way. Uh, we've got mm-hmm. <laughs> we've got this, whole, you know, the pretty blonde girl turned on, you know, that that horror staple turned on its ear with Buffy. Mm-hmm. But this moment feels even more subversive than that to me. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. It feels even more subversive than cheerleader a superhero because it takes this ingenue and it makes her ugly. All right. And I don't want to yuck anyone's yum if vamp face <laughs> is your thing. That's that is awesome. <laughs> right. Um, but I think we're meant to read Darla as unattractive and scary. And I think Mm -hmm. that is really noteworthy. This is a television show that is going to allow its conventionally attractive supporting actress to look awful. And that Mm -hmm. tells us something about what we're going to see. That tells us something about what we're going to experience on the show as a whole. Um, Because female ugliness, especially the sudden appearance of female ugliness, is still shocking. Because patriarchy. Yes, exactly. Because we will not allow that. Exactly. But that ugliness is also a metaphor for the ugly emotions and the ugly situations that we're going to encounter as we focus on Buffy and her experience, um, not just as the slayer, but as a young woman. Well, yeah, you know, and that's really interesting, too, because, you know, in this opening moment we're seeing her when she's pretty she's weak and she's you know being super feminine and very submissive Mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff but as soon as she claims her power she becomes ugly now that's not something that we're going to see as a you know as a message in Buffy because Buffy is powerful all throughout and she remains you know uncommonly beautiful all Mm -hmm. throughout so it's not like we're sending that message but I think it is kind of interesting Mm -hmm. you know and it's and when we come down to the ugliness of the vampire I mean the first vampire we see is a female vampire the vast majority of the vampires we're going to interact with are male Mm -hmm. vampires you know which is kind of interesting when you think about it because the the whole idea of the vampire right the vampire is seductive there's this sexy element to Mm -hmm. vampirism there's an association with vampirism and Mm -hmm. sex of course all throughout the history of, of the tales of the vampire so we have this idea of vampires being sexy, being associated with sex. Um, All of these vampires, the vast, vast majority, I haven't gone through and counted them all, but the the female vampire is a fairly rare phenomenon. We don't see a whole lot of them. But vampires are constantly turning each other, Mm -hmm. right? So it means that all these men are turning other male vampires into other male vampires, that we're associating this particular kind of power with a very particular male kind of Mm -hmm. energy. Um, But when you think about vampires turning each other, usually it depends on, you know, we we are very heteronormative, extremely heteronormative for at least the first Mm -hmm. few seasons of Buffy anyway. Um, And so it's interesting that they're all men, they're all turning each other. It seems to me like vampirism is a big, you know, hot gay bar, right? I mean, it should be, right? There's because this is a very, very sexual. There's thing. definitely some. There's definitely some sexy vibes with Luke and the Master. Um, oh, but sure. I was really, I was interested 
Because I was watching for that, especially mm-hmm. when Luke is feeding on the bouncer. Yes. I was mm-hmm. waiting for that to be much more homoerotic than it was. It looked... Well, deliberately homoerotic. I think it was it was inadvertently yes, homoerotic. But it was I not... Mean... <laughs> Right. <laughs> yes, of course it was homoerotic, but it wasn't um it wasn't objectified in a sexy sort of way. Right. Because that would be way too subversive, right? But there was a very sensual there's a very sensual relationship between Luke and the master. We have this moment where Luke is kissing the master's hand and that in that moment feels Mm-hmm. sexual and then we have where um where the master is painting luke's forehead and making him into a vessel yes right also feels a little mm-hmm. sexy you know like and i don't think that they were deliberately going for that and we're going to see throughout the run of buffy some troublesome you know uh, treatment of of homosexuality um and and even when we do it well when you know willow of course comes out in season four um there's still some questionable political places there's some questionable i think presumptions Mm -hmm. about homosexuality and all of Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff but we do have like that undertone here and i think we see it kind of lying underneath in this sort of sub sub subtextual way but in the way that it's shot in the way that that it's performed Mm -hmm. like there's a very sensual element to this relationship between Luke and the master. And notice that it is not Darla, you know, who is Luke's second, even though Darla is the first one Mm -hmm. that we meet. Darla is the one that we give the most personality Mm -hmm. to. Darla is the vampire who we see in non-vampire face. Yes. Right? Aside from Angel, who we don't know is a vampire just yet. Darla's the only vampire that we see in non-vampire face. And Jesse, when we're not sure that he's a vampire yet. So it's it's interesting um, how Darla, despite the fact that she's the one who is probably given the most personality, the most character, aside from the master, as far as the bad guys go. But it's Luke who is the second in command. It's Luke who is the vessel. It's Luke who shows the power. Mm -hmm. He's the one who attacks Buffy in the Mm -hmm. mausoleum, right? And he's the big guy who has never been, you know, nobody's ever attacked me since 1840, Mm -hmm. whatever, right? You know, Um, I I find that kind of an interesting choice because how much more interesting would it have been if we had allowed Darla to have that level of power as well? That would have been... That would have been really interesting, but then I wonder about the, because we are so um, heteronormative and so heterosexist, I wonder if the vibe between the master and Darla would have read as even more sexual. Mm -hmm. I wonder if there, I guess what I'm wondering is how, how much of a sexy vibe does the show want us to have around vampires? Um, it's a not, right. it's a non-zero amount of sexy vibe. Well, I mean, it's Angel. Yeah. Like Angel is going to be the ultimate representation of the sexy vibe throughout the first three seasons, at least until Faith mm-hmm. gets there. <laughs> yes. At which point Faith becomes the delivery system for sexy. It is interesting to me that Darla is not the second in command because she, of all of the vampires, seems to be the one who has her shit together. Um, And I think that that is interesting and noteworthy, too. But I noticed that when Buffy is fighting, Darla is also the first 
real, that's the first real fight scene that we get with Buffy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Buffy, when she enters the mausoleum, is not afraid of Darla. She yeah. is talking smack. She is, you know, she's yeah, clipping. Yeah. With Darla. But Luke scares her. When she's fighting with Luke, he's yeah. genuinely scary. Um, and he is yeah. genuinely scary. I mean, he's a. I mean, he's a big he's, dude. Like, just his physical yeah. presence. Is oh, and his biceps are as big around as her neck. I mean, it's terrifying. I know. Um, mm-hmm. And he is the, you know, she, she's got the stake. She comes mm-hmm. at him with the stake and he crushes it in his hand. Yeah. So we definitely have some interestingly gendered dynamics going on here. Yeah. That mm-hmm. this big, you know, um, meathead bro of a vampire <laughs> is our, yeah. he's the scariest thing. Um, well, right. And then we end that episode. We end Welcome to the Hellmouth with him descending uh-huh. upon her. You know, in this supine posture, which is not, you know, it's not, not reminiscent right. of rape. Right. right. So we open up with, um, with sexual coercion, you know, with this kind of, I guess, more innocent sense of sexual mm-hmm. coercion with uh, Darla and the boy that she would ultimately stuff mm-hmm. in a locker. Um, and then we have Luke with this much more directly, you know, coercive, much more, you know, reminiscent, much more like, uh, pulling out this kind mm-hmm. of rape metaphor, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, as long as we're talking about rape metaphors, yeah. right? The stake to the heart yeah. is a penetration, yeah. right? This. And that is, is that like, I mean, as long as we're, we're going there, let's go yeah. ahead and go there. Like, is, is that kind of the reversal of this? The women are the ones that get raped. The women's are the ones who get penetrated. The women are the ones that, that, you know, are, are being coerced. And then we, we have this way of fighting back by sticking that piece of wood mm-hmm. <laughs> into the heart. Oh, yeah. Of the male oh, vampire, the vampires who are typically yeah. male. So I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm, maybe I'm, you know, riding that horse a little oh, too no. far outside of the barn. But oh no, you're not. We can <laughs> let's go there, shall we? Shall all we go right. there? Because all right, let's. I do it. really, I want to get all psychoanalytic on this so bad. Right. <laughs> well, you had notes I had about notes. This, this kind of Freudian, the Freudian, oh, the Freudian stake, stake. So let's go ahead and talk about that. Okay. Yeah. No, I don't think it's a coincidence at all that the stake is so... Um, obviously, it's crucial to fighting vampires, right? We know this from mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Myth- the mythology around vampires. Sure. But it's the first marker... Of Buffy as the Slayer. She has that interaction with Xander in the hallway. Um, Mm -hmm. And it goes horribly wrong for him. He's just completely Mm -hmm. bumbling. And Mm -hmm. it ends with the the steak falling out of her bag. And he says, you forgot your steak. And he holds it up. With this kind of yes. what the fuck look, which to be fair is story appropriate, right? Right. Mm-hmm. We've had this, we've just had this scene with Xander being a complete bumbling idiot trying to mm-hmm. hit on Buffy. 
and it totally yes. failing. And it ends, the scene ends with him holding a phallic symbol like he's never seen it before. Right. <laughs> I don't understand I don't, what this is when it's pointed what is at this? me. <laughs> what is this, you know, right. what is this powerful device? I mean, I think we're definitely using the stake and the the... It's not a coincidence that we're using the phallic yeah. symbol as mm-hmm. a marker of power, as representative of, fa- of right. power. But on Buffy, we have the the phallus as a symbol of feminine power, which is uh-huh. fascinating to me. And taking control of that mm-hmm, symbol. Mm-hmm. Wow. But what I, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And it's not just that moment. It's not just that moment with Xander and the, I don't know what to do with this long pointy device. Right. I've, I've never been on this I end don't know what this is. long pointy um, thing before. When right. the first time we see a stake used, mm-hmm. <laughs> I love this so much. Um, the first staking of the first vampire on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Happens when Buffy pulls the stake out of her shirt. We get a neck to navel close up of her hand reaching between her breasts to pull the stake Mm -hmm. out. It's a she's got it between her T-shirt and her button front. And Mm -hmm. that feels so heavy handed to me. That feels like this is this is what we're doing. This is the the. The power, the control, the previously male energy in this space, mm-hmm. in the space of the show, belongs to the female body. Um, right. And there are some subtle indications of that as well. When Buffy and Willow are talking about calling the police, Buffy says they'd mm-hmm. only come with guns. So we have guns yes. as this symbol mm-hmm. of patriarchal masculinity, which, of course, point and shoot. And yes. they are ineffective in this female power-centered world. Yeah. Um, when Buffy needs a stake and doesn't have one, she mm-hmm. breaks off a chair leg first, which yes. is we have furniture as a symbol of domesticity. And then the second time mm-hmm. she needs a stake and doesn't have one, she breaks off a tree branch, which connects yes. her to nature. Mm-hmm. So we're taking these feminine spaces and we're drawing the power from them. Literally, we're breaking up these feminine spaces and symbols as a source of power. And I think that that is one place where the feminism of the show really holds up. Like The feminism of the show is a really interesting thing because I think a lot of times... It is almost an accidental feminism. And then yes. sometimes it is it sometimes it buries itself into the patriarchy mm-hmm. so much. Like it's it's so it's got so much patriarchal influence, which of course anything in our culture does because our culture is a patriarchal culture. Um, these things end up in our storytelling. There is a concept that I use a lot when I talk about stories. Uh, you'll hear me talk about this over in my storytelling podcast, How Story Works, um, where I talk about this concept of terroir. Now, terroir is it comes from wine growing, right? Where whatever the flavors are in the soil, where the seed of the grape is planted, that those flavors are going to come up in the grape and they're going to find their way into the wine, mm-hmm. right? And 
it's not deliberately done. It's just that's what's in the soil at the time that this is planted. So here we have, you know, Buffy coming up from a highly patriarchal, a very racist. I mean, we are as a culture, as a country really, you know, kind of um, imbued with both white supremacy and mm-hmm. the patriarchy to very, very, very bad influences. Oh, we're yeah. going to be talking about the show has as a huge race problem talking which... about the show. It does, as so many stories, yeah. especially from this mm-hmm. era do. And a lot of that is mm-hmm. terroir. You know, it's 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 not to say that we don't have a responsibility to both see it and reject it. But a lot of this stuff comes up, I think, without a conscious understanding or a deliberate intent from the creators of sure. these stories. It just happens. It just throws it. It just ends up in the mm-hmm. soil, you know. So part of the thing that... Um, that I love doing with Buffy and why I'm so excited to have these discussions with you because you see things that I've missed. I've, I've missed this whole time. Um, her pulling the stake from her shirt, you know, from, from her yes. bosom, which is one of the things that what, when you're interacting with a man as a woman who has grown up in America, you of course oh, are yes. familiar with this. You're interacting with a man. He wants to minimize mm-hmm. you. What does he do? He drops his eyes mm-hmm. to your breasts. He reminds you that you're a woman, mm-hmm. you know, and um, and then that is is something that that sets that power dynamic. You know, you're a woman. Don't forget you're a woman. I will objectify you mm-hmm. at any time. Yes. Right. So she takes the source of objectification, the, the most ready and obvious source of objectification that men tend to go to and pulls from it the phallic yeah. <laughs> symbol yeah. of power. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that in itself right there is worth the price. Absolutely. Of admission, right. <laughs> Absolutely. It is. Yeah. Um, yeah. I want to talk a little bit. Can we talk a little bit about objectification? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Because that was something that I was on the lookout for right from the get go. I was really interested in, you know, Buffy has this reputation as a feminist text. And I'm like, yeah, well, but it's a mainstream television show mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and it's a mainstream television show featuring high school aged girls what what yes. are we going to be how are we going to approach the the physical bodies of these these young women um mm-hmm. as we're talking about them and i really I was both disappointed and not disappointed um, by how <laughs> male gazy um, Buffy is. I mean, do you know what I mean when I talk about the male gaze? I do, but why don't you go ahead and explain it for people who haven't heard that term before? Okay, let me talk a little bit about the male gaze. So the male gaze, and I'm I'm going to talk about this. You're going to get sick of hearing me talk about the male gaze. <laughs> so the male gaze... Um, Feminist film critic Laura Mulvey coined the term male gaze in 1975 to describe the act of showing the world and women in cinema and the visual arts from a heterosexual masculine point of view. Um, Mm -hmm. The male gaze presents women as objects of cis heterosexual male desire. And that ends up meaning that in general, on screen, men act and women appear. Um, we've already mm-hmm. talked a little bit about how that is not the case on Buffy. Buffy is very mm-hmm. active. Um, but there are multiple viewpoints of the male gaze. There are three viewpoints within the male gaze. The people behind the camera, the characters within the film or television show, and the spectators. Mm-hmm. 
And I'm going to be talking about male gaze and all of those as we do this podcast, because it's very, very Mm -hmm. interesting to me. Um, So I was really interested in just how male gazy is Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, And in this Mm -hmm. in the first two episodes, not terribly, um, but it's not not male gazy either. Uh, Well, I mean, Xander, Xander immediately from the moment Buffy shows up on the screen, he wants her. He's got a thing for her. And I mean, yes, she's a beautiful girl. But like at that point, like Buffy is so much more than a beautiful girl. She's so much Mm -hmm. more than that. At that point, though, that is the only thing that that is the only information that Xander Mm -hmm. has about her is that she's a beautiful Mm -hmm. girl. And instantly he is converted into this, you know, um, trying to impress her, you know, kind of following her around. Um, you know, I mean, there's just a whole bunch of stuff there with the way that Xander basically, because she's beautiful, he's instantly into her with nothing else requires nothing else of her. So because all he requires from her is her appearance, every interaction he has with her until he knows who she is until he starts interacting with her as the slayer is essentially at its heart male gaze. Absolutely. And Xander gives us our first true point of view shot on the show. Mm-hmm. The the first mm-hmm. point of view shot that we get is the students moving out of the way of his out of control skateboard, which I mean, that feels pretty heavy handed on the symbolism too, that he's introduced just sailing mm-hmm. down the sidewalk, making everyone else move to get out of his way. The very picture of mm-hmm. male entitlement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he's polite about it. He's kind of, I think we're meant to see it as charming, you know, move, please. But it's still entitlement. And the so yeah. we get this, we get the point of view shot of everyone getting out of his way so that he doesn't crash into mm-hmm. them because he's not making any attempt to stop that skateboard. Um, yeah. And then mm-hmm. the next point of view shot that we get is also Xander. Um, he... Is he crashes his skateboard because he's looking at Buffy, and right. the camera is looking at her from behind. Um, but she shot mostly from the waist up, so we see her back and we see her long blonde hair. Mm-hmm. But even though it's not an especially sexy shot, I think the audience is still supposed to understand it as Xander checking her out and being, oh, yeah. um, I mean, distracted enough by her appearance that he wipes out on his skateboard. And I just, I can't with Xander. I have so much Xander hate. And I, I want to tread so carefully about what I hate on this show, but oh God. No, it's okay. And here's the thing. Like, okay, let's go ahead and address yeah, Xander. We? I know you have right away. things with Xander. I want to, I want to hear your I have I have complicated feelings okay. about Xander. I have very complicated feelings about Xander. First of all, like uh, there are two Xanders, yes. right? Um, there is the conscious Xander, and I, and when I say conscious, I mean like as far as like the, what the writers knew they were doing yes. with Xander. What I believe the writers to know what they were doing with Xander. Obviously, I can't know what the intent was at the time that he was written, and what the unintentional sort of shadow side of Xander that comes along mm-hmm. with that. Um, and part of that is um, it has been noted a number of times. Joss Whedon has said that Xander is him. Xander is is a representation oh, of himself and given things that have come out about Joss Whedon in recent 
times where we find him to be a very problematic figure with regard to women, that sometimes the the people who claim the loudest feminism um, are not the best feminists. Um, so Xander is, I love Xander in the following ways. I love that he's funny. I love that he's a beta male because I love me a beta male. <laughs> those are always fun. Like that for those of you who are unfamiliar with the idea of the alpha male versus the beta male, the alpha male is the tough in charge, the mm-hmm. Luke, right? You know, um, and and Xander, the beta male is the funny, smart, thoughtful mm-hmm. guy, right? Um, so I like those things about Xander. What happens with Xander, and we're going to see this repetitively throughout the entire run of Buffy, it does get a little bit better toward the end. But when I say toward the end, I'm talking like, you know, season mm-hmm. seven. Like we get, we, get, we get some of Xander's best stuff in season seven. Um, but what we get are these kind of this, this light side of Xander and then shadow Xander. So light Xander, I love. I love funny, smart, witty, loyal, um, a good friend. You know, um, he's, he's, I love all that stuff about Xander. But then we get the shadow side. The shadow side that I didn't even see for the first few times I ran through mm-hmm. Buffy. Like, I didn't even notice it. But the shadow side is the uh, sexually entitled side, um, the, the, the side that treats women, especially women he dates as we move forward in the series, um, dismissively. Um, and is is very uh, patriarchal and superior with them, uh, with women he has no business being superior with at all, um, and uh, and he's he's incredibly like um, problematic. Mm-hmm. I think as far as like representing. Um, toxic masculinity in a lot of ways. And I feel like it's folded into him in sort of this subconscious way in the same way that we see Joss Whedon, you know, extra textually, because Joss Whedon is not part of Buffy. He is the creator of Buffy, but Buffy also belongs to the hundreds of people who have also mm-hmm. worked on Buffy who Absolutely. never did anything wrong, <laughs> you know? Um so I mean, it, it becomes a problem if you if you completely lay this all at Joss Whedon's feet. But I believe that it is it is nascent with Joss Whedon that it comes from him and his personality. That the shadow side uh, has no consequence. The shadow side is often used for uh, for mm-hmm. a joke, you know, because isn't it funny the way that Xander feels entitled yes. to these women? Um, yeah, you know. Uh, so we have all of this really problematic stuff with Xander, but at the same time, like. Light side Xander, I love. Shadow side Xander exists without consequence, predominantly without consequence. We almost never see consequence. So it's not a problem in a story to have a character who has that shadow side, who, who behaves in these ways. This is representative of very real things that we deal with in our, in our society and our culture mm-hmm. all the time. The problem is when those things exist outside of consequence, that when those things exist and come in and are presented in the text of the show as though they are completely acceptable and there's not a problem with this kind of behavior at all. That's where I have my problem with Xander. But because I feel like the conscious intent of Xander is light Xander and that shadow Xander is something that sort of comes along. It sort of hitches a ride on the Xander that I love. My feelings about Xander are extremely complicated, although even I don't care for him much at all in these opening episodes. No, he's just... I am giving Xander the side-eyediest side-eye that ever side-eyed. Right. I mean, Xander <laughs> in these opening episodes, I feel like is the epitome of the entitled whiny dude. Um, and I right. love that you keep mm-hmm. talking about the shadow side of Xander because we see his shadow before we see him. Wow. Oh, my God. We see I his never shadow before, yeah, on the sidewalk. And then we co- the camera comes up to see 
who this is. The shadow is the anchor yes. of Xander. Yeah. Oh, I mean, God. and I think you're absolutely right that a lot of Xander is meant to be adorable. Like his first words to Buffy, mm-hmm. can I have you? Yes. The Freudian <laughs> slip that's supposed to be, oh, he yeah. like he's. And isn't that cute? Can I have you? Can uh, I possess you? Can I take ownership of you because mm-hmm. you are an object? Yeah. And when, yeah. when Willow and Buffy are having lunch together and Xander climbs over a wall to get between them and sit above them. Yeah. I mean, oh, this is the thing. This is the thing about film and television. These decisions are made on purpose. They may not be made consciously. Right. Um, they, right. But they are made on purpose. Anything you see in a fictional space, somebody chose. Somebody did choose it. And they may not have consciously chosen it. To be that's why a lot of times when we when we go this deep into analysis, mm-hmm. right? A lot of people are like, well, they didn't mean to do that. That just happened. There is nothing just happening. Like even if people didn't deliberately mean to do it this way, the fact that they made that choice comes from the the impetus to make that choice for whatever conscious reasons they mm-hmm. might have had also has subconscious reasons, also has things that they are not aware of. Shadow Xander is not a deliberate thing written into this story, but Shadow Xander exists. Absolutely. It is there. And the fact that it's subconscious makes it even more powerful and I think more illustrative. So I'm sorry. No, not at all. Keep going. I'm fascinated. No, not at all. That's absolutely, I mean, it is, I I think that that's something that is really crucial to point out that a lot of this is not, we didn't have our directors going, okay, now we're going to have Xander cross, literally cross a physical boundary and hover over them Mm -hmm. to make himself more powerful in this situation. No, that was not what was done. Um, It wasn't, Mm -hmm. I, I don't think, I'm imagining. I don't believe that was a conscious or deliberate yeah. decision. Um, right. But that kind of decision, that the reason that that blocking makes sense is because mm-hmm. it makes sense within a space where we're used to that sort of patriarchal entitlement, you know, men's patriarchal entitlement to women's bodies and women's spaces. Yes. Then mm-hmm. what's, what is interesting to me about Xander in particular with regard to all of this gendered analysis that we're doing is that he is the one who brings inadequacy into it. Yeah, no, he does. He does. And he throws that little fit. I'm inadequate. That's fine. I'm less than a man. It's like, yes, you are. You are a boy. You are literally less than a man. Yep. Yeah. You know, and it's all about him, too. Like when he follows Buffy out after she tells him to stay back because he will just be a hindrance on her. He follows her to the mausoleum and he says, because I could just sit home and do nothing because that's about right. him. It's not about helping right. Buffy. It's not even about saving Jesse. It's about him and the fact that he doesn't want to feel helpless in this circumstance. And he doesn't want to let Buffy be responsible for his friend yeah he brings i love this he doesn't bring any of the tools that would help him to the he he brings a flashlight to the tunnel so Mm -hmm. the tool he has is not only useless but it's actually detrimental you know buffy hisses at him to turn Mm -hmm. it off right he's not even he's not contributing um right he's i when when she talks to him about being there and he explains mm-hmm. that he wants to help and she tells him to leave, that pause, there is this 
unbelievably long pause before she allows Mm -hmm. him to come with her, before she gives up um, and lets him come along. And I really, really, really want there to be a line in there, something about you are going to die. He's not. Right. You Like, if you come with me, this is actual life and death that we're talking about mm-hmm. here. Right. But it's not life and death for Xander. It's about him allowing a woman to be in charge mm-hmm. of the situation. Yep. yep. You know, and allowing Buffy and trusting Buffy that she can handle it and that she's handling it. I mean, at this point, he knows that she is the vampire slayer. He knows that vampires are a real thing. He has seen her in action, you know, um, in the graveyard when he, when she rescued both of them together. So at this point he knows her power. He's seen her in action. He knows she's not helpless. And what he's not thinking about is the fact that he will actually be like a hindrance upon her. He will make her less effective by being there. But he's not thinking about this from any perspective other than his own. He's so insecure about his role because his identity is so tied to being a man. He talks about standing around like an idiot and Willow has to correct him. And she says, not like an idiot, just standing He's the one who puts all right. of this negativity on not being an active participant in the fighting and the adventuring and the saving. Um, mm-hmm. It's not, you know, even when when he brings up, you know, I'm less of a man, that wasn't a gendered conversation until he made it gendered. It had mm-hmm. nothing to do with masculinity or femininity or who's a boy or who's a girl it's Buffy is a superhero who fights vampires and you are a teenage boy Mm -hmm. there is no reason for you to be fighting vampires the end exactly (laughs) I just can't I can't with Xander um I really can't I mean and then they get back to the library after they escape and he somehow helps her escape she needs him to mm-hmm. help her push the door closed on the vampire horde coming out. What? Right. And that's the thing. Like, she is the strong one. She That's the only time he's helpful. And she's like, come here, yeah. help me. You know, and he and somehow like she as the slayer with her incredible amount of power is unable to shut yeah. a door unless he comes yeah. and shuts it for her. Unless he comes and helps her. And he her. pulls her out into the sunlight. But only yes. after she mm-hmm. tells him what to do. She says, Xander, pull. Exactly. And that's what gets the mm-hmm. vampire hand out into the sun and, you know, right. lets her go. And then we're off and free. But they get back to the library and Buffy is calm and upset, but sort of handling it. And Xander goes kicking the recycling bin in the library because mm-hmm. he's just so angry. He just has all this male anger, and the only way he can express it is by taking it out on a poor, unsuspecting recycling bin. Um, Right, to which everybody else has that shudder of response. You see Willow, you see Buffy, they're like, you know, like it it upsets them. Because they're already, they have already also experienced everything that Xander has experienced. Mm -hmm. Right. But this moment is all about him and him being upset. Um, There Mm -hmm. is something sweet about his line, though, when he says, I don't like vampires that there's something really dear and vulnerable about that. And then he's the one to realize when they're talking about where the vampires are going to go to feed, 
Mm-hmm. Xander's the one who realizes they're going to the bronze. And there's a real sadness right. there mm-hmm. um, in his mm-hmm. line. And I think that it's his grief over Jesse that enables him to make the connection that the vampires are going mm-hmm. to the bronze. So, yeah, I mean, as as much as I am suspicious of Xander, <laughs> I mean, that feels unfair. But he is, I think there is some real genuine sweetness there, too, and some real... Um, mm-hmm. I get a real sense of friendship between Xander and mm-hmm. Jesse, even if their their some of their friendship is based on problematic male behavior. I think Xander has mm-hmm. genuine friendly affection for Jesse. Yeah, well, I mean, Jesse, you know, human Jesse before he is vamped is still like a, an incredible oh, douchebag. Like, you know, he's he's still pretty yeah. terrible. Um, and I actually really enjoy the relationship between Xander and Willow. Yes. You know, there is this, I mean, she, of course, does a lot of his emotional mm-hmm. labor. You know, she's she's the one in that moment where she's like, not like an idiot, yeah. just standing. You know, it's it's part of it is saying it is okay because you're a boy doesn't mean that you have to be the one taking all the action. So there's that. But it's also that she is patting him on the head and saying, no, no, mm-hmm. you're okay. You're fine. Yeah. You know, and doing that emotional labor for the man, which is something that we see a lot, you know, in, in real life and, you know, reflected again in our stories. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do like there's genuine affection between Willow and Xander. Willow sees everything. Um, I think on a much broader sense, she has an understanding of everything in a way that Xander doesn't, but she has a great affection for Xander. And so there's a transference for me that I love Willow. I trust Willow. Willow loves Xander. There must be something in Xander that is, you know, redemptive, yes. <laughs> that is worthy of Willow's Oh, affection. I agree. Um, which moves us nicely into having a discussion about Willow. I love Willow so um, much. I I love Willow, but you know what? Willow for the first episode is essentially just walking vulnerability. She really is. You know, she's, it's very clear from the beginning, you know, she has this relationship with Xander. Um, She is, you know, it's, it's given away in, in in subtextual clues. It's not really in the text at all, but that she is, you know, kind of in love with Xander. Mm -hmm. You can kind of see that in her. So she's, she's vulnerable in that way. She's vulnerable to Cordelia who is really, really nice to Buffy. And then all of a sudden, so nasty to Willow for absolutely no reason. It's like watching someone kick a puppy. And I love Cordelia for a lot of reasons, but that's really tough watching her pick on Willow for absolutely no reason at all, just to be Mm -hmm. nasty, you know? Um, So Willow is um, romantically vulnerable. She's socially vulnerable. Um, And she's in this situation where, you know, Buffy comes and talks to her and says, I hear you're the one who's going to get me caught up. And she's like, well, you don't have to talk to me. Like, you can't hang out with both me and Cordelia. It just isn't done. You know, like she is vulnerable in every way. And then at the end of the episode, she gets damseled, you know, which is the act of of putting a woman in danger so that she must be rescued. Of course, she's being rescued by Mm -hmm. Buffy. So it is not it is not a traditional damseling in which we, you know, dangle a woman in, in over the pit of danger in order to motivate a man and show how heroic he is. So at least we're subverting it in that way, that it is, you know, an opportunity for Buffy, who has responded to Willow's incredible vulnerability with love and affection and kindness. And she just genuinely likes Willow from Jump, which is I really love good. seeing Buffy um, be kind to Willow. Um, my yeah. favorite, my absolute favorite moment might be 
that exchange between Buffy and Willow at the bronze where Buffy mm-hmm. launches in. She's going to, you know, launches into, well, my philosophy. And then she stops herself and she says, do you want to hear my philosophy? And Willow says, mm-hmm. yes. And I just cheered because that's what enthusiastic consent looks like. Yes, you know, we're used exactly. to talking about consent in all yes. circumstances. We're right? used to, well, yes. we're used to talking about consent as non-consent. And it's like this scary conversation that no one wants to talk about consent. But I love that this is a great example of how to do consent, you know, just mm-hmm. properly and yes. joyfully. And it's such a sweet exchange between the two of them. Um yeah. You know, and Willow Willow saying, Oh, that's sweet about you might die tomorrow is just Right. I just love <laughs> Because she sees everything in this in this very bright, very positive mm-hmm. way, you know. And we're gonna see Willow. I mean, when you talk about a character arc, um Oh dear you God. Know, when you talk about Willow going from the beginning of season one to the end of season seven, and as we're recording this episode of Still Pretty I am finishing up my um, my run on season seven in the video series for Still Pretty. So I'm, I'm looking at these two things concurrently, you know, Willow at the end of season seven and Willow at the beginning of season one and how we have like this incredible arc for this character. Um, but right in the beginning, we see that she has this innate positivity, that she will see things in the most positive yes. way possible. She will see people in the most positive way possible. Um, and even Cordelia, like her relationship with Cordelia, I find really interesting. Like Cordelia is yes. the bully. Cordelia is being terrible to Willow and being just absolutely mean. And Willow, instead of fighting back, just kind of takes yeah. it, right? But then we get into the harvest where we have the scene with Cordelia and Harmony. Harmony, Harmony. who we don't see at her best but, yet, but who will become fast, like um, one of my favorite characters. I love Harmony. <laughs> Once Harmony turns, after Harmony becomes a vampire, Harmony the vampire is one of my favorite things in the whole run of Buffy and Angel. I absolutely love the whole thing. Um, but Harmony, she's in the, the computer lab with Harmony. She's saying nasty things about Buffy. And it is when Cordelia says nasty things about Buffy that's when Willow yes. stands up. That's when Willow defends. Willow will not defend herself. Willow is not about the ego. But when it comes to defending people who are kind to her, people who are good to her, the people mm-hmm. she loves, that's when she fights back. And then when Cordelia wants to know how to send it, she says, oh, deliver. And Cordelia has the delete key and deletes all of her work, which is just a lovely way of getting back at Cordelia and thinking fast mm-hmm. on your feet. Because if you know what D-E-L mm-hmm. stands for on a computer you know, keyboard... It would never occur to me to think of no. it as deliver, you know, because I right. know what it is. But she's so fast on her feet in that moment and making that, you know, making that assumption and, and sending it over to Cordelia. Um, I think it's just it's really beautifully yeah. done. And Cordelia gets her. And that, that little moment. hint of the powerful willow to come. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And we, we transform her too from I mean, in the first episode, she's all vulnerability mm-hmm. and damsel, right? That's yes. pretty much all she is. But we get into the harvest and she's not just vulnerability and damsel. And she's not just, you know, um, ready to fight back when it comes to defending her friends. But now she's moving into mm-hmm. Hacker Willow. She is the one who's able to wrest information from that dread machine, yes. as Giles would say, right? Um, so it's it's wonderful to see her given that capability 
you know, and, and having a role to play in yes. the group. Yeah, a role that suits her. And I think it's it's notable also that she's she remains very vulnerable, but she's also very intelligent. And I think we don't mm-hmm. see a lot of that um, in female characters. We don't see the sort of sweet, innocent, kind character who is also very, very smart. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that we we get a, a different version of that idea much later in Oz, who is the laid back, mm-hmm. super chill guy who is also very intelligent. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't yes. know if it's mm-hmm. just that, you know, the folks at Buffy don't write characters who are not intelligent. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Right. But because smart people. Yeah, write smart but it's, people. it's something mm-hmm. that is really it's really fun to see that combination um, in Willow of sweetness and innocence and vulnerability and also mm-hmm. brains. You know, she's yeah. really, really smart. And courage. Yes. She is incredibly mm-hmm. brave. You know, um, she doesn't have a moment where she's not ready to get in the fight, you know, and when they have that conversation, you know, she and Xander after discovering that vampires are a thing, Mm -hmm. right? You know, and she says, everybody else thinks this is just a normal day, but we know we have this knowledge. And through that knowledge, you are essentially changed. You know, that knowledge has a transformative power. And once you have that knowledge, you have that power. You have the, the power that yes. comes with that. And and with power comes responsibility. And Willow's first response to the power of knowledge is to take responsibility yes. for it. Yes. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Willow gets me to Giles. And I want to talk yes. a little I want to I want to talk a lot about Giles, but I want to talk a little bit about Giles and his relationships with Buffy and Willow. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. I was really on the lookout because because I'm suspicious of all men in film and television, <laughs> apparently. Um, <laughs> Which is a result of this this patriarchal, you know, subtext in everything. Like, let's just state right out, although it's, you know, an hour in. So if you stop listening at this point because you think we're man haters, <laughs> fine, whatever. For anybody who's left, like, we don't hate men. I love men, <laughs> you know, I mean, men are great and men are hurt as much by the patriarchy Absolutely. as anybody else because they are not allowed to feel their emotions. They're not allowed to express their emotions and then they end up expressing everything in terms of aggression and anger. And that is not healthy for men in the same way that you know, white supremacy is bad for exactly. white people. You know, I'm going to talk about white supremacy throughout the run of this as well. And I'm going to say it's yeah. a bad thing, <laughs> you know, um, and it hurts white people the same way that the patriarch hurts men. So anybody who is anti anti-white supremacy, anti-patriarchy, anti-all of these oppressive systems is not anti the groups of people that benefit from those systems because they benefit in ways that are actually not helpful to exactly. anyone. And in fact, so I just want to state that outright. No, we don't hate men. In fact, it is that <laughs> it is the that patriarchal relationship that even mm-hmm. makes me want to give Giles the side eye in the first place, right? Because Giles yes, is uh-huh. nothing but affectionate and enthusiastic with the the students Mm -hmm. that he interacts with but because of these patriarchal systems where men own women and men are predatory by nature i want to be suspicious of him and even buffy calls him on it she makes a joke about it she says 
um, when she runs into him at the bronze, she says, hanging out with the, or what is it? Partying with the students. Isn't that kind of skanky? Right. <laughs> so, right. But he is there as a, as a watchful eye. And we have this moment too, that I love with Giles, which I think, um, you know, contrasts nicely with Xander because it was consciously done. Whereas Xander's shadow self, I think is, is unconsciously done. But with Giles, he has this, you know, she says, well, why don't you kill the vampires? And he says, a watcher Mm -hmm. watches, you know, and the slayer slays. He's like, my job is to impart wisdom to prepare you. And she goes on that whole speech about prepare me. How are you going to prepare me for this? You know, Um, but he is completely comfortable with playing a supportive Mm -hmm. role, with being in a support position to the slayer who has the actual power. And at no point do I get any sense from Giles that his masculinity is in any way threatened by that. No, I don't either and I don't get I was watching for creepy boundary crossing older dude and I didn't see any of it I didn't see any of it at all I mean no there's never any sense of him seeing these you know children as anything other than children his his role with them is paternal mm-hmm. in the best way paternal in a healthy you know fatherly absolutely way. um yeah and it's uh and it's really mm-hmm. nice to see and when he he says he we call out his accent he says that was a bit british wasn't it about his whole request to <laughs> willow you know his his proposal that willow yes. help him and i wonder if he's very british to make him seem stuffy and asexual so the audience isn't worried about him being alone with these teenage girls yeah maybe although i think that like first of all there's nothing about anthony stewart head that no. is asexual at all the man no. is absolutely sexy and i have to say like the first time i watched buffy i was a bit younger but as the more i watch it the older i get the more i'm like giles is hot y'all <laughs> giles is hot he's smart He's British. He is unthreatened by strong and powerful women. Um, he is self-aware. He's smart. Like he is everything. If I could make a boyfriend out of materials that are just from Giles, I would absolutely do that. <laughs> yeah. And he likes, he he is happy to play that supporting role too. The glee yeah. with which he thunks down that giant vampire phone yes. book. I mean, he's... He's so he's he is a nice counterpoint to Xander in that way, because he's so happy to play a supporting role. He has no. No, he absolutely is. And he is a truly feminist character and showing us the best ways in which feminism is beneficial for men. Right. Giles is emotionally connected. Giles is intellectually curious. Giles is not wrapped up and you know aggressive behaviors he is analytical he is smart he he plays a supportive role knowing that being part of the team is important and in no way is threatened by that these are all incredibly wonderful things um but what i find really fun and what i love about his enthusiasm in the beginning is that he he approaches buffy with this this really really you know huge amount of enthusiasm for vampires and dark things in the night this is what he's been working for his whole life and you have to think about this he's a watcher there are as we will find out when the world building expands over the years that there's a, a big group of watchers. There's a watcher's council. There's all these people that you get prepared for being a watcher. I think his grandmother was a watcher or something like that. Or maybe that's Wesley's grandmother. Somebody's, <laughs> somebody's mother or, or grandmother was a watcher at one point in somewhere in the canon. I don't remember where it came from. Um, 
But we have all of this, you know, from him and he is connecting with Buffy or interacting with Buffy solely in the realm of the Slayer. And she rejects that Mm -hmm. in the beginning. Right. She wants to be the teenage girl. She wants to be the normal teenage girl. That is who she wants to be. That is the identity that she's working Mm -hmm. with. Right. And he is working with the identity that she is actively trying to suppress at that point. You know, the slayer identity, the superhero identity, the identity, not just with power, but with huge amounts of responsibility. As I go back to quoting Marvel and Spider-Man again, with great power comes great responsibility. But that's not a coincidence. I feel like Buffy Um, is Spider-Man in a lot of ways. and. I mean, she absolutely I kind of want to get she's transformed through an accidental moment and then her entire life is changed. Yeah. And I kind of want to get Joshua Unruh on this Buffy and Spider-Man. Oh, yeah. We could definitely talk to Joshua Unruh. Uh, for those of you unfamiliar, Joshua Unruh is my co-host on uh, Listen Up A-Holes, which is the Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast. His understanding of superheroes, you know, he's, his tagline is the superhero scholar. And in no way is that, you know, is that like puffed up. He has earned every bit of that. He knows everything about superheroes, both in the canon of the stories from uh, having such an incredibly deep knowledge of both DC and Marvel and basically all superhero comics throughout time but he also has this deep understanding of the philosophy of the superhero and it's interesting because over on still dead the podcast about angel that i'm doing with uh with kelly jones um we're going to have him as a guest to talk about uh angel is he a superhero or is he a mystery man and i think we might have to have him as a guest here too to talk about the role of superheroes especially with regards to women femininity and patriarchy smashing so um so we'll definitely have to have him on that would be amazing but one of the things though that brings us to is this kind of like I mean the one character we haven't talked about yet is of course our our title yes. character our titular character right Buffy yeah you know um here we have Buffy who is essentially split between these two identities, right? She's got this secret identity of the Slayer that she is actively rejecting. This is the identity, of course, that Giles is appealing to in the beginning and is slapped away, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but it is the essence of who she is. She cannot ignore or reject that identity. It is part of who she is. And as soon as like the moment that he's talking to her as the slayer, you know, she rejects that. But after they find the dead guy in the locker, she comes in to tell Giles about it because she wants to pass off. She still feels responsible Mm -hmm. for it. She is still responsible and she wants to pass off that responsibility to the adult. Let the adults handle this, you know, Um, she cannot transfer that responsibility. And she ends up, of course, taking it on once the danger hits close to her, once it hits Mm -hmm. Willow. That is the moment that she actively embraces being the slayer and goes out to protect Willow and Xander Mm -hmm. and Jesse, you know, these friends that she's made. Um, But Buffy is really an interesting character in that she is, you know, the the eponymous character. This is the character for whom this entire story is built and yet Buffy sometimes I think ends up being one of the less interesting characters in the show maybe because she has all of that weight on her shoulders not just within the text and the world of the story but also you know in the storytelling itself she has to carry so much of what motivates and moves this entire story so what are your feelings on Buffy I think it's interesting that we open in her unconscious mind. The first time we see her not mm-hmm. in the opening credits is she's mm-hmm. asleep. Um, we open with her in bed and she's, you know, it's 
she's not sexualized at all in bed. She's a buffy burrito. But we get yes. her dream sequence as the the first thing. Um, you know, that's our first real contact with her. And I got to say, I mean, that that dream sequence at the beginning is like an engraved invitation to me. It's like, dear Noelle, <laughs> we like symbols a whole lot. We take them very seriously and they're everywhere. Have fun finding them. Your friends, the folks oh who made Buffy. Oh my God. Well, you know, it's like, it's this adorable, like, I mean, for my, for my visual studies, nerdy heart, I mean, it's fantastic, but we, mm-hmm. we access Buffy through her unconscious. Um, and that's yes. a pretty big deal. I mean, that means that we're going along mm-hmm. with Buffy and her experience, um, Mm-hmm. And that the show is going to have to take her thoughts and her desires and her pain seriously. I mean, she runs the show, literally. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the advantage of being the titular character, right? But um, right. but as a character, I mean, I did not find her as compelling in the first two episodes as everyone around her. Um, I like yeah. that she's not especially afraid I like that she's mm-hmm. rejecting her identity as the Slayer, not because, you know, this is not news to her. She doesn't deny that she's the Slayer. Mm-hmm. I mean, she uses her super strength to break into the locker room. She doesn't try, she doesn't pretend to be something she isn't. I mean, other than having the whole secret identity thing, this is a job for her. Being the Slayer yeah. is a job, and it's a job that she does not particularly want to do because she's experienced it already, thank you very much, and she would like to move on. Right. And it and it kind mm-hmm. of destroyed her life. She got kicked out of school. She burned down the, um, the gym mm-hmm. at the old school. You know, I mean, it, it wasn't yeah. good for her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she's – I feel like we get to know kind of the, the idea of Buffy – in the first two episodes, but not, you know, it's it's the pilot. There's not going to be a lot um, there for her to. Well, yeah, the pilot has a ton of heavy lifting to do from a narrative mm-hmm. perspective. Um, a pilot has to set up the world. It has to set up the characters. It has to get your story moving. There are so many things that need to happen in a pilot. And it is one of the most difficult things, one of the most difficult challenges for a writer mm-hmm. to take on. You know, it is it is incredibly, incredibly mm-hmm. heavy lifting to have to do. Yeah, but I do think it's it's noteworthy that her experience is really what's going to drive us and what that says about the show as a whole, that it's going to put that young female experience front and center. Um, so we mm-hmm. are experiencing the world how she experiences the world yeah right through her experience so deeply and one of the things that i'm very excited to hear you say is how much you absolutely love dream sequences because (laughs) i hate them um from a symbolic point of view dream sequences can be incredibly powerful and i think from the the point of view that you're taking this very visual this very philosophical this very deep what do the symbols mean space i think that it's going to be really interesting and i love that you love them because i think that you will redeem them for me because from a narrative point of view dream sequences are often just very very cheaply purchased exposition um and so i will say that because buffy's prophetic dreams you know dreams that can tell what's going to happen um are 
part of the world building and they're not used in this instance to give us exposition. They're used in this instance to show us that this is part of her experience and we are very, very deeply in her POV and mm -hmm. in her experience. Um, so I will say I give the dream sequences throughout most of Buffy a pass, but when we get to Restless at the end of season four, I am very much looking forward to you making that at all bearable <laughs> for me because I hate that episode. I'll see what I can do. I hate that episode. Uh, yeah, I think I think you'll like it. I think it's going to be really good. Um, so Buffy, I think, is um, is interesting in this title role. She does have a lot of weight to carry, and the main protagonist always, always does. There are so many jobs that the protagonist has to fulfill narratively, um, which side characters mm -hmm. usually don't, and which antagonists usually don't. I've always said I love writing antagonists because antagonists have one job. Yeah. Right. All they have to do is block your character, your your main character, your protagonist. Um, and that's it. And then you can do anything else you want with them. Whereas with a protagonist, you have to have, they have to have the most at stake. They have to be the one with the, the goal. They have to be in active pursuit of that goal. They have to be not necessarily likable, but definitely sympathetic. We have to build them in a way that we see them in a sympathetic way. Now, I think Buffy is also mm -hmm. likable. Buffy's funny. She's obviously incredibly smart, which I really like seeing. Um, that she's, it's not just about her being beautiful and strong and tough and powerful, but she's also very, very smart. And we see that in this this classic signature Buffy quipping, mm -hmm. which we sampled, you know, at the a lot at the top of the episode with our some of our favorite lines from these two episodes. Um, but she's uh, the fact that she can also go into these incredibly dangerous situations, these incredibly dangerous spaces, and instead of being a scared little girl, you know, she's quipping, she's in control, she's you know um, being snarky with these these demons that she's mm -hmm. there to kill, you know? And when you think about the fact that she is basically a child who has been tasked with yeah. killing, you know, I mean, as, as her main, you know, um, main purpose on this planet is to kill, to kill. And as we move forward in the world building, which we'll see as we move later to kill and mm -hmm. to be killed, Slayers mm -hmm. don't last. Slayers don't hit old age. They don't die peacefully in their um, bed surrounded by, you know, fat grandchildren. That's not something in the offing for mm -hmm. a slayer. Uh, slayers have short, brutal lives. Um, and so that's something else that as we move forward in the story, we are going to be talking about that also a lot. Um, but I think that Buffy as a character is, um, is very likable. We do get a sense of her challenges. We don't see the deep vulnerability from her that we see in Willow and, and even in Xander. True. You know, we don't, and even in, even in Giles, I think we get more actual deep vulnerability. Vulnerability stems from, you know, narratively from a couple of things, fear, identity, love, mm -hmm. and shame. And we see um, a lot of these things in, in Xander. We see definitely vulnerability stemming from the essential shame mm -hmm. of who he is, you know, that he is just essentially ashamed of himself and should mm -hmm. be in a lot of ways. Um, Giles, um, his vulnerability comes from love, not love for Buffy at this point because he's really just met her but love yes. for the work that he does and when he has that incredible enthusiasm and is batted away from the the person that gives his life meaning professionally as a watcher your life is given meaning by the yes. slayer you know and he is the one watcher who actually gets the slayer that is obviously very important to him so we see his vulnerability in in that perspective you know and Willow of course is nothing but walking vulnerability we have fear for 
her life. We have her sense of herself and her identity. Um, we have her love for Xander. Um, and we have her shame at being, you know, a nerd and, you know, being like socially mm -hmm. rejected. So we have all of that. With Buffy, I think we get a bit of her vulnerability in the sense of her identity. She does not want this rejected identity. She does not want to be the Slayer, but mm -hmm. she's stuck with it. Um, but we don't see a lot of real deep vulnerability from Buffy in these opening episodes. We will get a ton of vulnerability from Buffy throughout the run of the series. I don't think it becomes a problem. It is a problem throughout the run. But in the beginning, in this first episode, um, these two episodes, which essentially function as one story for the pilot, um, we do get, I think, a Buffy that is compelling, if not deeply vulnerable. It's the one thing that we're kind of, it's the one key to Buffy that we're kind of missing at this point mm -hmm. in the story. And I think it, it puts you at a distance. Vulnerability mm -hmm. brings you closer and a lack of vulnerability brings you, pushes you further away. And um, vulnerability sourced from identity is the least, I think, powerful sense of vulnerability. I could see that. That makes sense to me. I also... I mean, we, we have one more one more character. We haven't discussed <laughs> the uh, the mysterious man in the room. Talk about oh, the mysterious talk about man in the room. No vulnerability. Talk about a character who will be rewritten from the bottom up very very soon. So he's he almost doesn't count. Angel, angel. The vampire, we will discover him to be a vampire a little bit later, although at this point, I think you can probably guess that he, he has some relationship to that. Um, we don't see him in daylight at all, and I think mm -hmm. that that's a bit of a giveaway. Um, he gives the cross to Buffy uh, safely ensconced inside of a jewelry case, and he does not touch it. Um, so we have some clues, you know, um, falling short of him walking in front of a mirror in which he is not reflected. <laughs> we have some clues that he may be a vampire. But he also is fighting against these vampires. He is trying to prevent the harvest. He shares a goal with Buffy. Um, but his behavior as he comes in, I mean, the angel that we come to know throughout the run of Buffy, and especially the angel that we come to know in his own series, um, is this guy has no relationship to that at all. He is smarmy and cocky. And not at all the angel that we are going to come to know, that we're going to get to know, like, even in the next episode. He is completely rewritten from the bottom up. And also the velour jacket. <laughs> I mean, that is not okay. I don't care if you're a vampire. It's that is the Dracula okay. cape of the 90s. <laughs> like, just, no, the Dracula cape of the 90s, which we're going to see. Um, we're going to see Angel adopt this, and we're going to see Spike later in the series adopt this, is the black leather duster. That is the cape. <laughs> that is the vampire superhero cape. I know better than to argue with your expertise. Oh, man, no. But the, the velour jacket is just a bad, it's, it's a bad call. It is not at all. The angel that we know, we will later get sort of this whole period retconned for us later on in the series as we go back into flashbacks of Angel's life before he, you know, moved into Sunnydale and, and connected with Buffy. Um, we're going to see that the angel that we see before that is is so different um, and so much more complex and so much more interesting than the angel that we're presented with in this episode, this, this cocky, you know, uh, instead of a floppy haired douchebag, he's yeah. a spiky haired douchebag, uh, but yeah, a douchebag nonetheless, I do not like you know, him. um, I do not like him. Buffy says, I and neither do like, we, no. <laughs> 
But yeah, but no vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Exactly. We don't see much from this guy. Um, but we do get a sense of him being also invulnerable. He is also incredibly cocky. He is incredibly quippy, uh, but not in a way like Buffy that shows his strength. Instead, it feels like a veil that he mm -hmm. hides behind. And so we don't actually see yeah. who he is. But um, but your initial thoughts, you don't know Angel as well I as I do. <laughs> have you have you seen? Did you ever watch the TV series Angel? I never did, no. Oh, okay, well, you can watch it along with Still Dead as Kelly and I go through it. Um, but uh, but yeah, like Angel, as we get to know him, this is not at all representative of him. But but having less of a relationship with Angel, the character, than I do, what was your response well, to him? I knew that he was a vampire, and I was watching for mm -hmm. any sort of clues that the show gives us. You know, I wanted to, I was curious right. to know how soon does the audience figure out that he's a vampire. Um, one of the first things he says right. to Buffy is, I know what you're thinking, I won't bite. Um, yeah. And that's a great, that's a great little clue there. But um, he, I was looking at him most, I mean, mostly he feels like a, a prop. He feels like world building to yeah. me. Um, mm -hmm. We see him as sort of, made the the costume design makes him really parallel to Buffy when they meet they're often wearing something that sort of coordinates yeah um but that is some serious evil dude lighting on his face I mean he oh, is yeah. not he is mm -hmm. a shifty shifty dude um mm -hmm. especially the scene in the mausoleum hit the right side of his face is lit but the left side is completely shadowed He's yeah. literally two-faced. He's both light and dark. Um, and that's a visual light motif that you'll Which he literally yeah. is. Yeah, I mean, as a character, he is both light and dark because he's the mm -hmm. vampire with a soul. And that's a visual light mm -hmm. motif that we see throughout American film and television. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you can look for it yeah. all over the place when somebody is hiding who they are or... Um, mm -hmm. We'll see it when somebody's not telling the truth. We'll see it when somebody mm -hmm. um, is maybe only showing us part of the truth. We'll see that. Right. Or we'll see it when a director just decides that's how they want to light the scene. <laughs> you know, I mean, sometimes, you know, sometimes a cigar True. is just a cigar. And yeah. sometimes, you know, the X-Files <laughs> did it and it looked great. So we're going to do it yeah. on Buffy, too. Yeah. We're going to make it right, super dark exactly. um but i suspect that we're going to see a lot of that that sort of film yeah. noir lighting as we go through buffy um and of course meanwhile in that same scene you know there's all of this lovely key light on buffy's face and sarah michelle geller looks like a mm -hmm. baby i know my god she was such oh, a child babies. <laughs> babies they're all babies even the the ageless vampires it's pretty great <laughs> Well, there is actually another character that I wanted to talk about sure. just a little bit. And I think this character, as we were talking about how deeply we are in Buffy's POV throughout this story, I think that Joyce is kind of a victim of that as well, because we have her mother, Joyce, who basically simply exists to be the mom, the annoying you know, mom who loves you and is nurturing and whatever, but is also really annoying and trying to connect with Buffy and trying to understand Buffy, but mm -hmm. she can't, right? You know, because the big, the big metaphor of, um, of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, at least in the start, is this idea that right. high school is hell, right? You know, so we are taking that from metaphor and bringing it into this, this fantasy realization, you know, um, within the realm of Buffy where, in where the high school actually sits on top of yes. a hell mouth, 
you know, that it is it is spewing hell um, throughout the hallways of this high school and this experience. And of course, Buffy is constantly torn between her domestic reality, her everyday mundane reality, which is during the daylight hours, and then her superhero reality, which is yes. at night, right? Because at night is when the vampires come out, and that's when she has to become superhero Buffy, and she has to kind of change and transform. Not entirely unlike a werewolf when the... Uh, when the full moon comes out, which is another thing we'll be seeing later on. Mm-hmm. We talked about Oz a little bit and we teased that a little bit and we will be seeing that more. But here we have Joyce who is um, simply kind of an annoyance, kind of a, a fly to swat at. We don't really see her as a complete character into herself. And again, early stages, this is, you know, the pilot episode, the two uh, episodes that function as a pilot. Um, we're establishing a ton of things and getting everything in there with depth and complexity, especially in these subplots, you know, which is which is not really, you know, a big thing in this episode. Um, we don't really have time or energy to make Joyce right. consistent. But she's basically like a cardboard antagonist to um, to just throw up a roadblock whenever we need it that isn't necessarily motivated by who Joyce is. And we're going to see this happen actually a lot through the first couple of seasons um, where Joyce just simply exists to be a problem in the moment, whether that's consistent with the problem that she was last week or not is really not our concern. So we end up seeing Joyce that no matter what she says, no matter what she does, she is always a problem mm-hmm. for Buffy, you know? Um, and so I'm, I'm interested to see like did you have any thoughts about Joyce did Joyce even land on your radar watching this you know um with without all of that you know deep Buffy perspective I've been you know sinking into Buffy for the last you know five years of my life constantly (laughs) on a daily basis so for you who's not so deeply like ensconced in this world what did you see not so deeply ensconced yet Yes, I know. I'm pulling you in, baby. <laughs> um, I don't. I don't have a lot to say about Joyce. She really, in mm-hmm. what we see of her, she's really just the mom. Um, yeah, I mm-hmm. like the little bit of a nod to Joyce with a a mind and a character of her own, where she says no, and then mm-hmm. she says, "The books all say I should get used to saying it." No, like she's yes trying so hard to be a good mom you guys and Mm -hmm. i mean but she really is just there as the mom Mm -hmm. yeah as the Mm -hmm. as the opposite right you know and the opposite to giles which i find really interesting because we have joyce you know the feminine representing the daily part of buffy the daily identity of buffy the identity that she is during when the sun Mm -hmm. is up you know that it is this domestic, it is the nurturing, it mm-hmm. is the mundane, right? You know, Joyce is the essential representation of the mundane, whereas Giles is a representation yes. of the mystical. And the mystical is actually more real than the mundane, you know, in this context, because the mystical is metaphor, is reality um, being transformed through metaphor into a different yes. reality. You know, um, so I find it really interesting that, you know, we have this kind of reflection of the masculine and the feminine, you know, and that Giles is the one who is is kind of presiding over the reality that is actually more real because it is emotional reality as opposed to like actual mm-hmm. literal reality, which is yeah. what Joyce represents. Um, so I think that it's it's kind of it's kind of interesting. And I often think as much as I love Giles you know, how this would have worked had we flipped that and had Buffy's dad 
you know, um, not the dad that we actually get in Hank Summers because he's mm-hmm. a useless piece <laughs> of garbage. Um, but a good parent dad, you know, at home representing domesticity, representing mm-hmm. the mundane, and then a woman, a female slayer, um, or, or a female watcher, I'm sorry, um, you know, in the role, of, like connecting Buffy to actual mm-hmm. reality, to what things really mm-hmm. mean, you know, and how, how that would yeah, have been interesting. Yeah, that definitely would have read like a much more... Um, pointedly gendered story it would but i think that we're i think it's better the way that it is and the reason why i say that is because we have a role for the masculine within this this actual reality within the truth reality within the the bedrock of of reality which is buffy's existence as the slayer demons are real vampires are real Mm -hmm. all of this stuff right um that i like that we have a strong role for a man that's emotionally connected. He's not the nurturing domestic uh, force, you know, that, that Joyce is or that mm-hmm. Joyce represents, but he is a nurturing, strong, supportive male yes. role model. And I think that we need that within feminism is not about everything is all girls all the time. Mm-hmm. Girl power. Feminism is about creating a space in which um, both men and women get to be all parts of themselves, that they're not restricted to whatever the patriarchy decides. The patriarchy decides that men need to be aggressive and assertive and powerful, and women need to be meek and sweet and pretty um, and domestic mm-hmm. and nurturing, right? That Giles can be nurturing. Giles can be sweet, and we're going to see him be that a lot. Buffy can be powerful within the actual reality that lies underneath this false mm-hmm. mundanity. Absolutely. And we have a sort of preview of coming attractions with Giles and Buffy and their relationship when he says, I don't have to tell you to be careful and gives her that that look as she's going out the door. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just see that that sort of that nurturing presence shows up pretty early mm-hmm. Um but it's fant- it is I agree that it's I think it works a lot better having the yeah. the feminine adult in the the domestic space and then having this mm-hmm. positive non-toxic masculinity yes. um, in the mm-hmm. in the school space in the um, mystical space in the mm-hmm. true identity space um yeah, I think it's it's really well done. I think so, too. I think it works out really well. Um, all right. So I think we're, you know, winding things up here a little bit. But mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about our first big bad. Now, one of the things that Buffy does is that every season we have a big bad that is introduced um, in this episode. It's right from jump. Um, usually mm-hmm. we wait until about episode three in the longer seasons. But this is a 12 episode season. We don't have time to mess around here. You know, <laughs> we're moving forward. Um, so we have the big bad introduced in The Master. And The Master... I think becomes more interesting and more complicated as we move forward here. He truly is just the, the grotesque, you know, the grotesque ultra evil, you know, representation in, in this episode. What did you think of the master? I really liked his scenery chewing. Yes. <laughs> it just made me really happy. He just really goes for it. Yeah, um, he does. I love, I mean, we talked about it a little bit already. I like his relationship with Luke. I think that's that is interesting. Um, 
but I think he just there's something there's just something so great about him to me with his how yeah. dramatic he is and how much he just is he's really going for it. He is. He's not. He's holding nothing back. Played yeah. by Mark Metcalf, who is um, absolutely delightful. I think in the role. Point. I, I do love that '90s CGI when he rises out of the, the oh, blood. Sure. The yeah, blood the special bath. effects. Yeah, the special effects. <laughs> the dusting. Everything is is really rough in the yep. beginning with with very little budget for this thing, um, yep. and a lot of it is done off screen. Yes. Um, Yeah, we have a lot of things that are done, like some of the dusting is done off screen. Um, We're very, very careful about a lot of this, uh, partially because of, I'm sure, violence and standards and practices, and partially because we just simply didn't have the budget. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the master pokes the the eye off screen. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a lot of off screen violence in these first couple couple episodes. Um, And I'm sure some of that is for budgetary reasons. And I think some of it is also just they didn't know what they were going to be able to get away with yet. Yeah. And also there there is an aesthetic reason to putting things off screen. I mean, if you can do something off screen and indicate it with uh, sound effects, for instance, mm-hmm. the eye poking, right? Yes. Um, that can actually be more powerful. What we don't see can be more powerful than what we actually see. Sound effects are one of the most powerful tools for any uh, visual artist, for anybody working within t- TV and film. And used appropriately, um, you can create uh, things that are actually more powerful because we don't see them. Mm-hmm. So I think that playing with what is on screen and what is off screen can both be a function of budget and a function of actual aesthetic choice. I feel here it was a function of budget because the aesthetic choice and the way that it was pulled off was not necessarily that strong. Yes. Um, and the aesthetics of these first few episodes, like the first season in general of Buffy, are is not great. The directing in these episodes was um, was pretty bad. I think that the harvest was better than than Welcome to the Hellmouth, but Welcome mm-hmm. to the Hellmouth was just uh, was just a mess. We had some shots where people are blocked, you know, like you see the back of somebody's head, and so yes. you don't see like all of Cordelia in that scene where they're all talking in the. Um, in the courtyard there at the school. Mm-hmm. Um, there were so many shots that I was looking at. I was like, what in the hell are you even doing? Like, is this your first job? You know, <laughs> like, I mean, I don't want to throw any shade at the director, but I was like, I don't even know what's going on here because some of the shots were just bad. They yeah. just were not well done. They were not evocative. They didn't work. And the aesthetics, of course, of every show will evolve as the show evolves. And we do see the aesthetics of Buffy evolving throughout. Almost every season has a different kind of visual aesthetic. We graduate it. We evolve it. We make it more complicated throughout mm-hmm. each season. You know, mm-hmm. uh, They never just sit back and do one thing. You know, in Buffy, it it is constantly moving and constantly evolving, both in the storytelling and in the visuals of how they tell those stories. Um, But uh, but for the big bad for first season and for, you know, establishing in the pilot, I feel like we've established who the master is. We established that he is bad news, that he is difficult, that he even, you know, will stick his finger in the eye of of his vampires, of his team, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and he is truly, truly evil. 
So, um, so it's kind of fun. It was kind of fun to play with them. So, um, in still pretty, just like everything else that we do at Chipperish Media, we are going to finish on a positive note. So no matter what it is that we're talking about, um, we can, we can finish positively. And, and given that, that welcome to the Hellmouth and the harvest are good episodes, we didn't have a whole lot of negative stuff to say. Um, but I want to go ahead and move into what's your favorite part. Um, so Noel, can you tell me what is your favorite part of these two episodes? Oh my gosh. I have several favorite parts, um, but the one that just cracks me up so much is when the vampires are figuring out that there's, there's a slayer Um, and the master wonders out loud about proof of a slayer and asks Luke if he has any proof that there's a Mm -hmm. slayer. And Luke says, only that she fought me and yet lives. <laughs> and the master says, very nearly proof enough. I can't remember the last time that happened. And Luke hangs his head and says, 1843, Madrid. <laughs> He's been thinking about it this whole time. Right. I'm just head cannoned that That's like, that, that was deeply distressing to right. him. He's still, he's still, he needs a little therapy. He needs yeah, to be able to he, move on. Yeah, yeah, he still has not moved on from that experience. Right. <laughs> All right. So oh, what was your God. favorite part, Lonnie? You know, for me, it was the prepare me speech. You know, when Giles mm. says, oh, a watcher trains, he prepares her. And Buffy's like, prepares me. How are you going to do that? For getting kicked out of school, losing all my friends, having to spend all my time fighting for my life. You know, mm. go ahead, prepare me for that. And I love that moment because we're going to see that reflected more passionately in the season finale for season one, Prophecy Girl. Um, so we're going to reflect back on that again because she's going to have that speech not about preparing her to fight but preparing her to die like how Mm -hmm. how does she deal with that how does she accept that you know um and it's uh, in prophecy girl i think is the moment when buffy becomes buffy you know when we really see what buffy is capable of but this is a nice sort of precursor to that this is the moment in the opening episodes that grabs my attention and says, okay, we're doing something here. We're doing something real with this. We're not skimming over the fact that this girl is going to live every day of her life in mortal peril, you know, yes. and what that means to somebody who is 16 years old and just wants to be a cheerleader, mm-hmm. you know? So, um, so I kind of love that because it has the, the sense of, of anchoring in reality of of not tiptoeing past the heavy stuff and the dark stuff um that buffy is actually famous for buffy will address the darkness you know Mm -hmm. um and that's what makes it i think so good at what it does because it is it's playing in this horror space but it is not ignoring what the darkness means as opposed to just you know how scary it is and how gross it is to see you know a a master vampire poke out another vampire's eye you know Mm -hmm. um it's not about the thrill and it's not about the the being afraid it's about the very real you know issues of what is it you know to the whole of Buffy not just the superhero of Buffy but to these two parts that are warring with each other you know to become integrated um you know what does that mean for her and I I love that because that's the moment that speaks to it's the first whisper of what Buffy will become to join in the discussion on Twitter 
Follow Lonnie at Lonnie Diane Rich and me at Noella Loud and use the hashtag still pretty. But the best place for all the great discussion is on the Patreon Discord chat. Just a dollar a month of support gets you in with some of the smartest Buffy geeks around. Absolutely. You can also show your support for Still Pretty by going to Apple Podcasts and giving us a review. That's one of the most effective ways to show support for your favorite podcast. So anybody that you're listening to, if you could take a few minutes to just give them a review on Apple Podcasts, that is a huge way to show your support. Um, Or use a social media platform of your choice and just let everybody know that we're out here. Word of mouth is an incredibly powerful thing. Definitely. We will be back next time with which the third episode of season one. Until then, stay pretty. Stay pretty.